the fact that we are at the place we are now where we've had 100,000 deaths, we have no coordinated plan across our nation for this pandemic, and we're still seeing national leaders mingling in large groups without masks, national leaders saying that this is not as concerning as we as physicians and scientists and healthcare workers know it is. It is very frustrating to see that from from a scientific standpoint. And so, you know, it's I understand why physicians across the country are are getting even more burned out and nurses and, you know, anyone in in the healthcare field is getting burned out because it's sometimes depending on what state you're in, sometimes it feels like you're yelling into a void. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Shikha Jain, a board-certified hematology and oncology physician and the founder and chair of the Women in Medicine Summit. Welcome, Shikha. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for making the time. I imagine you are busier now than you've been in a really long time. Is that pretty true? Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. I Looking at your bio, it's it's daunting to me all that you've achieved. And I am wondering from all the many things that you work on, what is the most pressing for you right now? So I would say, you know, obviously patient care is always important and it's a very, I'm very passionate about patient care and it's something that is very important to me. But right now we are in a very unique time in our history, you know, as we're living through this COVID pandemic and um, there's a lot that goes along with it. So I actually founded with five other physicians, a group recently called Impact, where we're working on amplifying organizations and advocating for accurate information to be disseminated on public health crises. And then, you know, along with that, another public health crisis that's going on right now, we are seeing protests around the country. And so our organization is also working to amplify the voices of those who can help guide us through this second public health crisis that's happening concurrently. Then the third thing that I'm really working on, and that, you know, you mentioned that in my bio, as one of the founders and the chair of the Women in Medicine Summit, um, gender equity is something that has not been achieved across the board, and especially in healthcare. And because we are currently living through a pandemic and now a second public health crisis, a big concern is that gender equity is going to take a big step back and we're going to fall back into the olden days, so to speak, where gender disparities are even more amplified, especially in healthcare. So right now, I think you know my top three in level of priority as of today is educating people on COVID and trying to help navigate this very unique and strange new world that we're in. Um, and then really working on amplifying the voices that need to be amplified and amplifying the organizations that are doing amazing work to help us navigate these two public health crises. And then mm-hmm. also continuing to work towards closing the gender gap that exists in healthcare and making sure that people are intentional when they're making these decisions in often very challenging situations to make sure that the decisions are being made looking at not only 
certain aspects, but also incorporating in the things that we've been trying to incorporate into leadership for the last several decades, which is looking at who is being picked and looking outside of your own circle to find diverse people so that diverse voices are heard. Yeah, I'm very interested in your conclusion that because of the the very strange times we're in, which I do also want to get back to because of your perspective as a physician, I am a layperson and I find them very strange. <laughs> so I'm very curious about your take on that. But I want to ask you why I, I'm not I'm not doubtful of this, but how is it that that is an immediate consequence of these times that we will take a gender equity step backward? So we're already actually trying, starting to see it, which is scary. Um, you know, women are typically and stereotypically the primary caregivers, whether it's for their children or for aging parents. Um, so there's a lot of virtual learning. People have lost childcare. And so a lot of women across the country have either had to step back from work or they have had to sacrifice their work in order to make sure that their children are getting adequate education, being taken care of, being fed, um, mm-hmm. basic, basic things. We've seen there's actually a couple of studies that have come out in the last several weeks looking at the number of publications that have come across the journal editor's desks. And we've seen a huge jump in the number of publications by male authors and a decrease in the number Mm -hmm. of publications by female authors. Um, Mm -hmm. There's also this concept that people kind of fall back into what's comfortable and what's known. And being an organization that needs to identify gender equity and identifying diverse people, that takes intentional leadership. That takes effort and time to not just go for the first person you think of, but to really put effort into the search and make sure you're getting a qualified candidate that might not be somebody who you thought of right away. And that's something that takes time. And in situations of crisis, that time people sometimes feel isn't there. And so they fall back to, oh, well, I know this guy for this long, so I'm just going to reach out to him. He'd be perfect for this position, as opposed to asking several people, do you know anyone else who might be good for this role? And finding somebody outside of the immediate circle of the person making the decision. So Mm -hmm. we're already starting to see these equity gaps starting to widen. And it's concerning because once we emerge from this pandemic and these two public health crises, are we going to be at a point where women haven't been able to be promoted because people are thinking, well, she's responsible for taking care of her kindergartners, mm-hmm. you know, classroom mm-hmm. stuff. I've had people tell me, oh, I was going to ask you to do this, but I know you have three kids and I didn't want to place that extra burden on you because I know your husband also works. Now, Mm-hmm. No one has ever said that to my husband. So I feel like mm-hmm. that's just, it's people, sometimes it's people with good intentions. Sometimes it's just the way it is. And sometimes it's just, you know, having to balance home and life is hard enough when you have childcare, when your kids are in school. Now, when everybody's been home, that balance hasn't really existed for most families. I know that in a TED Talk that you did, you talk about how many women are actually applying to medical school, and it's a pretty it's a pretty even split, isn't it? Yeah, there's more than 50%. I think 2017, if I remember correctly, was the first time we started seeing over 50% of women, but it was close to 50% for years before that as well. We were definitely seeing 
um, pretty equivalent numbers of women and men applying to medical school for, for several years. I see a difference. I notice the difference between caregivers who are male and female, but I don't have an implicit bias as far as I'm aware. And it's funny to me to know that it's still alive and well. Yeah, no, it definitely is. I mean, some of it is even explicit bias. Like I have had patients who have told me, I don't want you treating me because you're a woman. I mean, I've had patients who have said, Hmm. I look too young to be treating them, which, you know, it's a compliment to a certain extent, but some people take it as, some people say it in a way where they're implying that I'm I'm not old enough to be treating them. I'm not experienced enough to be treating them. Um, you know, I've, I've had patients propose marriage to me. I had one patient tell me that I shouldn't be working because um, because I should be home cooking for my husband. Uh, I, I had another patient when I was pregnant with my twins inform me that I was a bad mom because I was planning on continuing to work after my twins were born. And so I think some of it is, you know, explicit bias where people just feel the way they feel. Um, a lot of it, I think, is just bias that exists or, you know, the way that things have been structured where there haven't been things put in place for women, for example, when you need to pump if you're a nursing mother or there haven't been the maternity leave policy has been a challenge throughout the healthcare world when it comes to physicians who are in training, physicians who are attending. There is challenges where, you know, people need to cover each other's call. So, there are things that you would think were would be built into the system that women can have a baby and come back to work and everything is smooth and it's not really the case. It seems that a lot of the system has been set up without women in mind. And so that poses mm. extra barriers and extra challenges for women as they are in the workforce. And you know, Dr. Julie Silver has published quite a bit on this, where looking at women as they advance in their careers, women who are published, women who get awards, we see huge disparities in women physicians getting awards versus male physicians. Um, a study came out looking at pediatrics and a pediatric journal. So there are more women than men who are pediatricians. But this one particular paper showed that the number of a certain type of publication was more dominated by men versus women, which doesn't make sense because there are more women in the field. And same thing with awards in fields that were, even if the in the fields that were female dominated, you were still seeing more men getting awards. So these disparities exist and they've existed for years. The question is, how do we work towards fixing them? And it really boils down to fixing the system that exists in order to try to create some sort of equity in the mm-hmm. healthcare landscape. And do you find there is a connection between the disparity and the kind of healthcare then that women receive based on, you know, whether or not their physician is a male or a female? That's an excellent question. There was actually a study that came out looking at how um, the readmission rate. So uh, basically when a patient gets discharged from the hospital, Mm -hmm. we look to see how quickly they're readmitted. And a study came out showing that women who treated the patients when they were an inpatient actually had a lower rate of readmission. Um, Mm. Going to your question about women's health specifically, women in general have for years been discounted when they come in with symptoms. So that Mm -hmm. has been, again, it's been well-documented. It's been studied 
The challenge is a lot of the research that's been done has been based on male physiology. Women were excluded from studies for a lo- from clinical trials and from clinical research for a long time. And mm-hmm. because of that, when we're looking at someone who presents with, say, a heart attack, a man will, may have different symptoms than a woman. So oftentimes women are misdiagnosed. Their symptoms aren't necessarily, I don't want to say they're not believed, but to a certain extent, sometimes they are. They're, they're brushed off as, you know, she's being histrionic or she's being mm-hmm. crazy. Um, there was actually back in the pre-Civil War era, there was this whole thing where doctors called uh, women sickly and frail. And so uh, it wasn't until women started to, uh, women became physicians, women gained the right to vote. All of those times are associated with huge moves in women's health. So Mm -hmm. women started to say, no, we aren't sickly and frail. We are healthy and we can do things other than be at home and take care of the kids. I mean, that's a hard job too. Don't get me wrong. But Mm -hmm. the challenge was women weren't being seen as competent contributing members of society. And it wasn't until women started to get more rights that that started to change. Mm -hmm. But I feel like a lot of that bias lingers, right? I mean, it's kind of alive and well. Yeah, absolutely. It it absolutely does. I mean, all you have to do is look at politics and see what's on the news and you can hear it. I mean, in so much of the national dialogue that exists when it comes to women's rights to choose their own, you know, what to do with their bodies or women's health. I mean, that that's a very charged topic, but it's mm-hmm. really interesting that you would think a woman doesn't have the right to manage her own health. So it's... <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, I feel so much when, when sometimes the, the best way that I can explain it to anyone is just imagine, it's, it's preposterous that this example has to be so elementary, but it's, it really is true. Imagine if women were telling men what to do with their bodies and, and, and directing them and not giving them a choice. Exactly. It just, it's so interesting to watch and it's so frustrating because especially as a physician, I mean, when we make decisions, we make decisions based on what's going to be best for the health of our patient, that we have no political agenda. We have no other, you know, reason for why we're making our medical recommendations, but so much has become so politicized. And a part of it is because for centuries, women have been seen a certain way. And it just takes time and effort and really being intentional to try and change the thought process. The problem is some of it is so ingrained in in the subconscious and in the nature and in the conversations that it's really hard to change. And that's why so many of these movements have come up in the last several years and they're absolutely making headway, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah. And I think that when you talk about patients and doctors in the community, we're talking about women right now and men, but there's also an issue of white and Mm non-white practitioners. And that must be a whole nother category to fight the disparity. Absolutely. I mean, it's been all over the news over the last couple of years, an African-American woman on an airplane um, basically told not to take care, not to help with a patient who fell, who was feeling ill because they didn't believe she was a doctor. And there's so many different. Oh my goodness. So many. I had not heard that. Oh yeah. This whole idea of 
intersectionality for for especially you know women and women of color it's it's mind-boggling the things that happen that can really be i mean some of them are just outright racism there's nothing you can mm-hmm. there's no way to to sugarcoat it but mm-hmm. there's some things that are based in implicit biases like you're seeing someone and you think this is not what i think a doctor looks like so mm-hmm. of course they can't be a doctor and that is that's part of the reason why it's up to everybody to really be intentional in working towards changing the system from the ground up there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make it so absolutely an african american woman that is that of course she's a physician um you know i think that my for example, my daughter loves watching Doc McStuffins. And I think that <laughs> Doc McStuffins is a great show because it is very intentional in, number one, in showing that, you know, the mom is a physician. Um, it's showing that you don't need to be look a certain way to be a physician. And it's, I think, you know, our children are our next generation. And so starting at that young age and teaching them, my hope is that as people age out of the system, so to speak, we end up with a new generation that can also help continue this work. And by the time my kids are old enough to be doing whatever they're doing, whether they're doctors or not, that this type of narrative has changed and we don't see these types of events happening as often as we Mm -hmm. do right now. Would you like your children to be doctors? That's a very good question. I want my kids to do whatever is going to make them happy. And make them successful in their own minds. So my parents, you know, my dad's a vascular surgeon and he was very clear with me growing up. He said, listen, being a doctor is a lot of work, takes a lot of work to get there and you need to be really passionate to do it. If you don't have a passion for it, don't do it because it's going to be a waste for you to spend all of this time and then be in in a position in a profession that you don't love. And Mm -hmm. so he really, both of my parents really gave me the ability to choose myself. And I chose to be a physician because I love what I do and I love taking care of patients. Um, Mm -hmm. I would be happy if my kids became physicians. I would also be happy if they became something else. I think healthcare right now is very tricky. We're in a very, very interesting point in the history of healthcare. And I'm curious as to where it goes. A lot of people, a lot of physicians don't want their kids to become physicians at this point because it is such a it can be a really disheartening field to be in where, you know, many feel burned out. There's a lot of feelings of underappreciation. There's, there's a lot of challenges that come along with being a physician. So I think, you know, for now, I would encourage my kids to consider it and to go into that field if they're passionate about it. But I think my opinion might change in the next couple of years. Who knows? I wrote a piece a couple of years ago for Kevin MD talking about um, as a rebuttal to a piece that came out in Forbes. And the piece that came in Forbes was about, you know, mamas don't let your kids grow up to be doctors. And huh. I wrote, and I was, I mean, I was furious when I read it. And I, um, I wrote a piece for Kevin MD saying, I absolutely will encourage my daughter to become a physician. I think that as healthcare evolves and changes, I think that, we'll have to see where it goes. Um, but for now, I would, yes, encourage both, all three of my kids to, to become physicians if that's where their passion <laughs> lies. Right, right. And, I, <laughs> right. and then your father, I know your parents encouraged you because I, I watched your TED Talk and I know that you felt encouragement from a really young age. And, and you mentioned that at five years old, you knew you wanted to be a doctor. 
Yeah, I did. I loved going with my dad and rounding in the hospital. Like he, he really instilled in me this kind of sense of wonder about science and medicine. And I just, and he did it, you know, he didn't do it intentionally. It wasn't, I used to go with him because my mom was taking care of my brother and my dad said, do you want to come with me to, to the hospital? Mm-hmm. And, and back then there wasn't HIPAA. It wasn't a big deal for you to bring, lots of doctors used to bring their kids to round with them. And I'd either mm-hmm. see patients with my dad or I'd sit at the nurse's station and like eat lollipops and popsicles. <laughs> so I really, I mean, I really loved it. Um, and I, I was lucky because I had, I have very supportive parents who have been with me every step of the way and have helped guide me as I it went on this path towards medicine. And even now, I mean, my, both of my parents, I'd say are my best mentors that I've ever had. Um, mm. But yeah, I, I, they really let me choose. And I think that was really important because I see people whose parents have forced them into the profession who are unhappy, who leave medicine um, to pursue other things, which, which is also great. There's a lot of ways you can utilize your medical degree for good uh, I just, I want to make sure that, you know, my kids know it's hard work to get there and it takes a long time. So be ready for that before you embark on that journey. Can you talk about the burnout for physicians too, or mental health around being a doctor? One of the big underlying causes of burnout is physicians are overworked and underappreciated. And that's, I mean, we've seen it really on the national stage in the news through this coronavirus pandemic where physicians are going in to take care of patients. They don't have proper protective equipment. They're working long hours. They're quarantining from their families. And absolutely, there's been a huge outpouring of support for healthcare workers and frontline workers over the last several months. The problem is that isn't, that's wonderful. And it's really important. And, you know, healthcare workers, I think are feeling more appreciated now than they have in the past when it comes to people speaking out. But there's so much abuse that happens within the healthcare system, from within and from externally, that I think a lot of people just say, forget it. You know, I'm, why am I killing myself? Why am I working so hard when I'm not seeing the fruits of my labor? it just, it becomes a real challenge when you feel like you're working yourself to the bone and you're not really seeing mm-hmm. much for it other than people complaining or spending hours on the phone trying to get insurance approvals or, you know, trying to understand a, a healthcare system's emer- uh, electronic medical record and having to do 600 extra clicks in order to actually order a prescription. It's just so much red tape has been put in the way of actual patient care that a lot of people are just feeling like, why bother? You know, why why go jump through all these mm-hmm. hoops when I'm being valued as just another, you know, cog in or another tool, another, you know, somebody who's replaceable. And I think especially with a lot of healthcare systems becoming a lot of private practices not mm-hmm. flourishing, a lot of people becoming hospital owned, the loss of autonomy in healthcare for physicians. We're seeing a lot of physicians say, I'm not my own boss anymore. Someone Mm -hmm. else is telling me what to do. I don't have a nine to five job, but I'm being treated like a nine to five worker. And so, you know, the time valued when you're on call, you're not getting reimbursed for that. When you're working 30 hours at a time, you're not being adequately reimbursed or appreciated for that. You're going into a pandemic and having to wear trash bags to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And then when you want to get tested, there's not enough testing to be done. So 
it's just, I think it's just a lot of things piling on and our healthcare system needs a complete reboot in my mind. We need to figure out a way to give some ownership mm-hmm. back to the physicians because really the people who are on the ground making the decisions are the ones who should be guiding how the system is set up. And I think we've gotten so far away from that, that the healthcare system has turned into more of a business. And when you're dealing with people's lives and life and death, you can't really run it like a business in order to be as impactful and as effective and provide the best quality of care. So I think the institutions that do the best job of actually having physicians who are well-balanced and aren't burnt out as much are those that take all of this busy work and this extra work that needs to be that needs to be mm-hmm. done and they offload it to someone else. And that allows physicians to really focus on what's important, which is diagnosing problems, treating problems, prescribing medications, talking to patients, and providing high quality of care. The problem is a lot of physicians don't have that support. And so they feel like they're doing 50% clinical work and 50% all of this other stuff. And it just, it's exhausting. And no one sees all of those other things. For example, you know, a patient of mm-hmm. mine had um, had a medication, a chemotherapy drug that had just been approved, but uh, his insurance company refused it. I tried to get on a call multiple times with the insurance company. I mean, that ate up over two hours of my time. Finally, I got someone on the phone at 6.30 p.m. at night. I was home with my kids and I'm having a conversation about why my patient's not getting his chemotherapy. Now, keep in mind, Mm -hmm. this has now delayed my patient's chemotherapy care. He's upset because it's now been several days and he hasn't been able to get his medication. I'm upset because I've spent three to four hours dealing with this, trying to figure out why he hasn't gotten his medication. And no one sees that extra time equity that the physicians are putting in. It feels so exhausting what you're describing. It feels like even if you went into medicine with, with the intention to help and because it fed you as a, as a physician and as a person, which is hopefully why people go into it, it I, I, I don't know how you would hold on to that with all of those other labors. Exactly. And that is a huge part of the reason, in my opinion, that a lot of physicians are burning out. I mean, I am the most optimistic positive person you would ever meet. And I get bogged down and drained and just frustrated because I sometimes feel like I'm climbing uphill, pushing a rock and somebody is pushing it downwards at me while I'm walking up. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the system is breaking slash broken and it needs to get fixed if it's going to continue on. It needs to change or get fixed. Yeah, I think, you know, this is just one component of it. There's so many other things. I mean, delays in care because of insurance approvals, delays in care because of access to care. Um, Just having a lack of supplies is, I mean, to be perfectly honest, the fact that our country didn't have enough protective equipment for our healthcare workers when this pandemic hit, that is baffling to me. I still Mm -hmm. cannot believe that it is now more than three months into this pandemic and there still is not enough protective equipment across the country. I mean, these masks that physicians are reusing and reusing, they are meant for single use. Yes, we have found ways to sanitize them and clean them and reuse them, but they are meant for single use. And if you look at other countries, the amount of protective equipment that they are putting on for each patient they go into is 
it's just mind boggling to see that compared to what our healthcare workers are going into the rooms with. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I never in my life would have imagined that we would be in a place where our healthcare workers didn't have the gowns and the masks and the face shields that they needed to safely treat patients. That just, I don't know how we got here, but I mean, that is a huge, huge thing that needs to be fixed because if we get hit with a second surge, well, when we, I should say, when we get hit with a second surge, we need to make sure our healthcare professionals are protected so that they can provide the best care for the people who are coming in. So where does that come from? Where, where can that begin? How, how do we make sure we have that? Who's, who's in charge? (laughs) Can you hear the panic? (laughs) I think that is the million dollar question. So, you know, all of these grassroots organizations have popped up. There's Get Us PPE. There's in Chicago, Mm -hmm. there's Get Me PPE Chai, which was organized by medical students. And they've done a phenomenal job of getting protective equipment to healthcare teams, to nursing homes, to, you know, other frontline workers. So, I don't know if I have a good answer. I mean, the federal government should be providing some protective equipment across the country. I mean, there should be, there's a lot of organizations and companies that started creating protective equipment, which is great. Um, You know, there's, there's a lot of politics behind it, which is unfortunate because in my mind, this shouldn't be a political situation because things like COVID-19 don't really care what your politics are. They will, uh, it will attack you whatever your whatever your belief system is. So it shouldn't be a political issue, but it has unfortunately become a political issue over the last several months. And so I don't know if I have a good answer as to where it's going to come from. I do know that we're in better shape now than we were three months ago. But my concern is when we hit a second surge, are we going to be back where we're not protecting our healthcare workers? And I mean, really, to be honest, we had so many things put in place before this pandemic with infection control and making sure, you know, masks weren't reused and taking off a gown and throwing it away before you leave the room. So the fact that we're still reusing masks and reusing protective equipment makes me concerned as to where we're going to be when we hit the second surge. And when is the second surge um, predicted to hit? Well, that is also the million dollar question. So (laughs) initially, when we talked about the second surge, we talked about it in the fall when flu season starts. However, with the second public health crisis that's currently going on with Mm -hmm. the recent protests and large mass gatherings, a -hmm. lot of the work that we've done with social distancing and trying to control the the virus over the last several months, we're concerned that we're going to see a second surge much, much sooner, as soon as in a couple of weeks, because we've seen all of these people together gathering, you know, for a very important cause and not to say that they shouldn't be doing it, but more that now we've seen that people who don't have symptoms can transmit the disease without knowing that they even have it. We know that loud talking and and singing and chanting can actually transmit the droplets um, more uh, easily. And we've seen these large gatherings and protests and vigils where people are very close together for long periods of time. We've also seen, you know, tear gas and pepper spray being used to to try to disperse these protests. And that results in people coughing and, you know, tearing up and not realizing they're, where they're standing. So obviously people have not been staying six feet apart because that's impossible in these situations. So we're really in an impossible situation right now where 
we need to be addressing both public health crises. But what's happening is these large gatherings make us concerned as medical professionals for a second surge to come in the next 14 days because that's how long it can take for the for the virus to to show itself. And you know, our our um, health commissioner here in Chicago, she gave a plea to to people that if they were at a mass gathering of any type in the last several days to self-quarantine for 14 days, to wear a mask whenever leaving the house. And really everybody should be wearing a mask when they leave the house to be avoiding anybody who's in that, you know, over 60 or having other medical problems, high risk category. And for anybody who has symptoms to get tested immediately and to quarantine themselves. But again, the challenge is it's more than likely many people transmitted the disease without even knowing they transmitted it and are now back home either with aging parents or with other people who live in the home with them and transmitting it in that way. We're starting to see the country open back up. So people who are at these large gatherings are likely going, possibly going back to work and spreading it mm-hmm. that way. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're concerned that we're going to see another surge in the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what that fear is like, you know, because you're, you and your husband and your father, I don't know about your mom, are physicians. First of all, is your mom also a physician? She's not, but we call her Dr. Mom because she's been to so many conferences <laughs> with my dad. She probably knows the back, like the, her, she knows vascular surgery, like the back of her hand. So we still, we still go to her for half our medical questions when it comes to our kids. So, <laughs> Honey, so. When your father and you and your husband, who are all physicians, started watching the unfolding of COVID and, and coronavirus in the world and then in our country, what were your thoughts? So at the very beginning, I will tell you, we all thought it was just like the flu. We really, at the very beginning, we thought this is not that big a deal. It's not going to impact the U.S. that much. It'll be like influenza and we just have to deal with it. Very quickly, all three of us realized that was not the case. So we started reading more and really I started reading more because I, as a mom, was seeing, you know, children's camps that were opening up and, and, you know, my daughter's school. And I started to get really nervous about her because she's, she's in kindergarten. And so I actually called parents and told them, you know, I'm pulling my daughter out of school because this is going to become a problem. And so other parents pulled their kids out of school, right. You know, a couple days before the shelter in place was in order here in Chicago, Um, I actually called our gym and said, I just want to let you know to be prepared. You're probably going to get shut down pretty soon. And, Mm. um, you know, when the shelter in place order went uh, into effect and, uh, and our governor shut down, um, childcare, our gym actually, uh, opened up, uh, childcare for people who needed it. And I called them and said, you know, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but the concern is this is actually extremely contagious and I have a feeling you're going to get shut down anyway. So you might want to be proactive and just shut it down before people use this as an arrangement because it's going to be, it could be dangerous. And so they, did they were listen to you? They did actually the same day they shut down. Mm-hmm. So they were, I, and it turned out to be the right decision because two days later, all child cares were being told to shut down. So they actually appreciated the fact that I was able to help guide them early on because mm-hmm. they were able to let parents know. So parents could find alternate arrangements um, and not end up, you know, in, in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, you know, that the group uh, that I co-founded and that I'm now the chief operating officer of called Impact that we started here in Illinois, um, it was founded by myself and five other physician parents um, 
five of us are moms and one is a dad. And we started it when around March, when um, we saw a lot of people going out and partying for St. Patrick's Day. And we realized that people didn't understand what a serious threat this was. And so we created this organization to, you know, as I said, amplify evidence-based information and get that information out to people who weren't in healthcare. Because, you know, we all had friends and family calling us and saying, what do you know that we don't know? Why are people not treating this like the flu? It's been in the news as it's just the flu. Why why are things getting shut down? Why are we in shelter in place? Why can't we go, you know, outside and, and have play dates? And, you know, this seems like an overreaction. Right. And so that's why we founded that group Impact, specifically because people were asking us and we realized the information that we had wasn't being disseminated as effectively as it could be to people who weren't in healthcare. And so we wanted to be a voice of non-politicized, non-partisan science that we could translate what was coming to our, you know, to our front door, how we, what we were getting, the information we were getting and spread that to people who needed to know because people were, you know, planning their lives and figuring out what they were going to be doing for the next couple of weeks to months. And so we wanted to make sure that they had the most accurate information. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think that this was going to happen? I mean, I know we've had SARS and MERS, but what, like, what was your perspective about it? So I think, you know, the, the good thing, if you can say there's a good thing, the good thing about the virus is most people who get it have symptoms and don't end up very, very ill. So that is one good thing. But we have had over 100,000 deaths in the U.S. to date. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest frustration for us as physicians is that the lack of a coordinated federal response has been frustrating. The fact that I have friends and family who work in the Department of Public Health who have been talking to national leadership about this pandemic way before it came to our shores and we're giving advice and giving recommendations. And a lot of the advice and recommendations that they were giving was not heated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we now know that back in February, a lot of protective equipment and ventilators were actually exported outside of the United States. We know that there have been barriers put in place to a lot of national responses that would have been very helpful for our healthcare workers and other frontline workers. The pandemic playbook, so to speak, that existed was, and the pandemic team that was uh, created in the past had basically been disbanded. Um, We're hearing from the CDC that they're being muzzled quite often when, then we, you know, we've, uh, we've talked to friends who work within the CDC and they're appreciative of groups like ours because they feel that they aren't being able to give the information that they need to give because they just have been told not to. Um, So I think the lack of a national federal response has been very frustrating because we can see how things would have played out differently if the advice and the words and the strategies that could have been implemented and that were implemented in other countries were implemented here. Mm -hmm. Now it feels like each state is kind of doing its own thing We're at a point now where COVID is still a problem. It's still a big problem. It's not that we have a treatment. It's not that we have a vaccine. It's not that we have a cure. But people have been 
sheltering in place or social distancing and isolating for so long, it's gotten to a point now where you have to reopen at some point. The problem is the reopening is happening and we're still at the same place we were a couple months ago in the sense that COVID is still not under control. And so it's frustrating to be in a point where we're seeing other countries who had a very good federal or a good national response and are now able to reopen a little bit more safely. When here, you know, you go out on a walk and you see half of the people aren't wearing masks when everyone really should be wearing masks when they're going out. You see, you know, people are still spreading misinformation about the the pandemic. There's still people claiming that the pandemic was created by a particular political party. And so as physicians, that's really frustrating. We we work so hard to take care of people and, you know, many put their lives at risk to try to take care of people. There are people who are dying in the hospital who are telling their physicians, this is all a hoax, you've misdiagnosed me, while they are not able to breathe and getting prepped to go on a ventilator. So it's just this pandemic has become so polarizing and so divisive in this country. It makes it challenging as healthcare workers to try to control things. It's like, we feel like we're putting our finger in one hole in a dam and Mm -hmm. there's 20 other holes that have opened up. And so we're, we've got our finger in one hole, but the dam is still leaking water because of these 20 other holes. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And and I think it depends on where you're getting your news, at least here in the Pacific Northwest, in my circle. I feel like we understand that it's been mismanaged. And we look at some of, me and my friends at least, we're looking at the people we love in other states and other cities who are not following the directions and who are still having parties and we're shaking our heads. So I do think it really has become, it's political and polarized and it never should have been that way. And I do think that that comes from the top. Yeah, I agree with you. And you know, I'm, you'll notice if anything that you read or anything I've written or anything that I, you know, podcasts I've been on, I try very hard to not be political because I think that, you know, as a scientist and as a physician, my words need to carry the weight of the evidence behind them. Mm-hmm. But I would say in this particular situation, it's it's evidence in itself in the way that things were handled. And it's not a political statement. It's a factual statement. The fact that we are at the place we are now where we've had 100,000 deaths, we have no coordinated plan across our nation for this pandemic, and we're still seeing national leaders mingling in large groups without masks, national leaders saying that this is not as concerning as we as physicians and scientists and healthcare workers know it is. It is very frustrating to see that from from a scientific standpoint. And so, you know, it's I understand why physicians across the country are are getting even more burned out and nurses and, you know, anyone in in the healthcare field is getting burned out because it's sometimes, depending on what state you're in, sometimes it feels like you're yelling into a void. Mm-hmm. So, so what would be a number one tip, the most important thing anyone can do right now to try to keep themselves safe? So I think the most important things are number one, still try to avoid being any, if you can avoid spending time with people outside of your family, meaning people who you live in the same home with, that's great. That is ideal situation. However, it's been a long time and I understand that people need to get out and they need to see other people. So if you're leaving your home, 
really important to wear a mask, a cloth covering, something covering your face. That's number one. The reason for that is because you're not only, you're protecting others from potentially getting the spread in case you are an asymptomatic carrier and other people are wearing a mask to protect you. The second thing is staying six feet apart. Even when you're socializing with people, try to stay six feet apart as much as you can, even when you're wearing your mask. Ideally, if you're going to socialize, try to socialize outside because there's less spread when you're outdoors, but still wear the mask when you're outdoors. Proper hand hygiene is extremely important. So washing your hands, hand sanitizing your hands often. Um, It's also important if you're able to um, avoid being around people who are over the age of 60 or who have uh, other medical problems, especially if you've been somebody who's been in any of the mass gatherings or if you've uh, gotten together with Mm -hmm. people who you don't live with, um, that would be extremely important. And if you're having any symptoms at all, we highly recommend getting tested right away and then self-quarantining yourself for until your test comes back negative. And for anybody who's been in a gathering of more than people inside your home and haven't been able to maintain the social distancing, stay home and try to self-quarantine yourself for 14 days from the time of when you were involved in the mass gathering. Mm-hmm. And this is for the foreseeable future, right? This is this information holds for the time being. It does. I think that, you know, as we start to move forward into different phases of reopening, these will be modified slightly. But the things that absolutely will stay the same are masks are or some type of face covering are extremely important. Staying six feet apart is extremely important. Um, socializing outside, extremely important and good hand hygiene. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before I ask you to share where listeners can find you, I have um, a question that I want you to answer, which is, well, there are two. If you, in your lifetime, it's like a double question. In your lifetime, what would you really like to see happen in medicine? And what do you think will happen in medicine? The, and, and the first one is like a wish list. And the second one is something that you think is reasonable that could happen. Wow, those are two really good questions. <laughs> so, <laughs> Dream big. <laughs> so I think my wish list, if, if healthcare could really become a place where the patient is seen as the most important person. And to do that, I think that physicians are going to need to take ownership again and take leadership and start really running healthcare systems. And we see that healthcare systems that are run by physicians often do extremely well because once you have, so to speak, boots on the ground and you're living and taking care of patients and you're living medicine, you're really able to make decisions that benefit patient care. So I think wishfully, I am hopeful that more physicians will take on leadership positions within healthcare and we'll see the pendulum shift back to a, a, a place where physician autonomy starts to guide how healthcare is navigated. And using that autonomy, physicians are able to recreate a healthcare system that, again, looks at the patients first and the bottom line second. So that's wishful thinking. Um, what I think actually is going to happen, I do think the pendulum is going to start to shift. I think a lot of it depends on how we come out of this pandemic because 
a lot of private practices, unfortunately, are going to go under because they haven't been able to do elective procedures. They, they are small businesses too. So they haven't been able to pay their overhead. They haven't been able to pay their staff. So there's a lot of concern that physicians who have private practices are going to fold. I am hopeful that we are able as a nation to rebuild and these types of practices start to pop back up because they are so needed. Patients need private practices and practices that are run by physicians where they can get seen the next day or where they can spend that extra 30 to 40 minutes being seen. I think that, um, and not even private practices, just practices that are really run by physicians. There's lots of different ways to, to do that. There's lots of different structures and different um, ways to create physician-run uh, patient care models. So I'm hopeful that we start to see that um, reemerge as we come out of this pandemic and we start to rebuild our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Thank you for for dreaming for a minute <laughs> with me. I appreciate it. So where can where can we find you? Where can I find you? What links would you like to share and places where a listener can learn more about you? Absolutely. So I have um, a website. So you can find me at shikajanemd.com, which is S-H-I-K-H-A-J-A-I-N-M-D.com. Um, if you're interested in learning about the conference that I put on, the Women in Medicine Summit, which is about gender equity in healthcare, you can find that at womeninmedicinesummit.org. And then if you're interested in um, evidence-based information and updates on COVID-19, um, the group that uh, I formed with other physicians here is called Impact. Our website is impactforhc.com. Um, you can also find me on social media. My handle on Twitter and Instagram is at shikajanemd. Great. I'm really excited to share those. I think Impact 4C will especially be so helpful right now. Thank you very much for taking time out of your incredibly busy workload to talk with me and to help uh, shine a light on on what, what we need to be facing right now. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.